Humans often take for granted that we are ultimately responsible for our actions, that the choices we make are governed by nothing but our own free will. To question free will is to question not only moral responsibility, but also the very notion of the self. After all, if you take away our conscious agency, then who or what exactly are we? If, for example, we take a Newtonian deterministic view of the universe and accept the universe as a place in which every event is caused by a pre-existing set of conditions that in turn result in predetermined actions, we would have to concede that free will in the strictest sense is an impossibility. Our acts, as John Gray notes in his 2003 book Straw Dogs, would be nothing but endpoints in long sequences of unconscious responses. Intrigued by this idea, in 1980, neuroscientist Benjamin Labette devised an experiment to try and determine whether our actions are conscious choices or not, with some surprising results. In Labette's study, titled Unconscious Cerebral Initiative and the Role of Conscious Will in Voluntary Action, participants were first hooked up to an electroencephalogram or EEG machine. The device uses electrodes placed directly on the scalp to measure communication between brain cells. With this set up, the subjects were then tasked with carrying out a simple function, such as pressing a button or flexing their wrist, while at the same time making a note of when they decided to carry out the action. After comparing the participants' perception of when they decided to act, with the actual brain function instigating the act, Labette and his team discovered that these seemingly voluntary choices were being initiated up to 0.35 seconds before the subjects were aware of them. The implications of Labette's findings were fiercely debated, with some suggesting that this small delay is just a period of latency between the brain initiating the action and our actual conscious awareness that we'd initiated it. However, this was challenged significantly in 2008 after a series of similar experiments conducted by a team of scientists led by Professor John Dylan Haynes at the Max Planck Institute in Germany revealed that some of our so-called decisions might actually occur in the brain as much as seven seconds before we become aware of them. Perhaps a little unnerved by the results, Professor Haynes was quick to leave the door open for free will, stating that it remained to be seen if such decisions could also be reversed or deliberately not acted on. Either way, the idea that free will is little more than a useful illusion is unnerving to say the least, and although we might yet come to accept this as merely a quirk of life, for others, the implication speaks of something else entirely something far more sinister. If we aren't in control of our minds, then who or what is? To travel upstream along the placid waters of the river mine from where it joins the mighty Rhine is to enter an enchanted world of ancient forest, colourful wedding cake towns and neatly turreted castles as if lifted straight from a grim fairy tale. It may be of little surprise then to learn that the Grimm brothers 
were born in Hanau, one of the first towns you encounter heading east out of Frankfurt, the largest city on the river. Following the waters south into Bavaria, you'll soon find yourself caught between the Odenwald mountain ranges to the west and the low-lying Spessart hills to the east. It is from these ancient mountains, with woods of oak, beech and fir, that tales such as Snow White and Hansel and Gretel are thought to have originated before being compiled and eventually published as the Grimm's Fairy Tales in 1812. If you were to travel deeper into these mythical lands, you might come across a place where four roads meet, and had you stumbled upon it one dark night centuries ago, you may have spied a young doctor by the name of Faustus standing in the forest alone, drawing mystical circles in the earth, and speaking strange incantations into the wind. Perhaps you would then have continued to watch in secret as the young man's chants were drowned in a cacophony of inhuman sound, while terrifying, monstrous apparitions appeared in the air around him, threatening to emerge from some other place. If you hadn't already succumbed to fear and made a hasty retreat, you might have seen one such apparition finally take shape, a demon and servant of Lucifer by the name of Mephistopheles, as recounted in the legendary tale of Dr. Faustus. Elsewhere, southwest of the Spessart Hills, lies a pretty hamlet of colourful stucco and half-timber houses with neat terracotta roofs. Known as Klingenberg, the town has weathered many storms throughout the years. Some brought destruction, like King Louis XIV of France, whose troops raised Klingenberg Castle to the ground in 1680, while others, such as invading Roman settlers from 2,000 years ago, left seeds that later blossomed into the well-established vineyards that today provide much of the town's trade. In 1952, Klingenberg, with its modest population of 3,000, is part of Western Germany, a nation newly forged from the ashes of the most destructive war the world has ever known. The old flags of red and white, with their black crooked symbols, that flew from the municipal buildings only a few years before, have been taken down and replaced by simple black, red and yellow stripes. It is in this town, one Sunday morning in September of that year, that Anna and Josef Mikkel celebrate the birth of their first child together. 24 years later, that same child will be dead. The result, some have said, of the most terrifying and convincing case of demonic possession ever recorded. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. Back in 1948, 200 miles to the east of Klingenberg, in the district of Leibelfing, 28-year-old Anna Furk is in a desperate state. The recent birth of her child Martha, born out of wedlock, has brought disgrace on her and her devout Catholic parents. Terrified that their daughter will no longer be able to marry, Anna's parents spy an opportunity 
when they're introduced to a young man named Yosef, recently arrived in town on business. With the help of the Diocese of Würzburg, and, it is rumoured, a few hundred Deutschmarks, the Furks gift their daughter to the young man. Yosef and Anna, shrouded in a black veil as a symbol of her disgrace, were married the following year. Despite their inauspicious beginnings, the couple are happy together and soon settle down in Klingenberg, where Yosef, now the head of his family's sawmill business, lovingly builds them a house on a quiet street overlooking Klingenberg Cemetery. It's a modest two-story home with cream stucco walls and a high-peaked roof, reminiscent of the steep vineyard terraces that slope up behind it before disappearing into the foreboding Spessart trees. Joseph loves Anna's daughter Martha as his own, but his affection for her is nothing compared to what he feels when his and Anna's first child together arrives on a warm September morning in 1952. Born on the Lord's Day, it is only fitting that she should be named Annalisa, meaning God is bountiful, and she is as beautiful a baby as any parent could wish for. She is joined soon after by sisters Gertrude Maria and Barbara, and together the four sweet children are a blessing on the pious and devoted Anna and Yosef. But in 1956, tragedy strikes. A tumour is discovered in eight-year-old Martha's kidney, which requires immediate surgery. The operation is not successful, and the young Martha dies soon after. To the avowedly Catholic family, it seems a particularly unfathomable tragedy. How could an innocent child be so cruelly and suddenly snatched from them? But part of Anna has always known this day would come. Martha had come into the world a literal embodiment of sin upon God's earth, and Anna had failed to compensate for it. Clearly, thinks Anna, Martha's premature death was God's inevitable revenge. Nevertheless, it is with great sorrow that Martha is laid to rest in the cemetery next to the house, albeit hidden away at the back, in grounds set aside for suicides and the so-called illegitimate. Convinced now of what she must do, Anna determines to make her second child, Annalisa, her vessel for salvation. To this end, she determines that she will do everything in her power to make sure her daughter will never be without the rosary or skip mass, and together they will win back God's love. Not long after Martha's death, Annalisa contracts measles, followed by the mumps and scarlet fever. Naturally, Anna fears her efforts have once again been in vain, but after much praying, Annalisa's ailments soon subside and she becomes a healthy, happy child once more. In the autumn of 1958, a six-year-old Annalisa takes her first communion. As Anna and Joseph watch proudly while she eats the body and sips the blood of Christ, it is with the feeling of a great weight being lifted. 
the arrival of another baby girl in December, christened Roswitha, comes like a reward for all their efforts. Many happy years follow, and at the age of 12, Anneliese graduates to the Dahlberg Gymnasium in Aschaffenburg. It is only a 10-minute train ride from her home, but those 10 minutes spent gazing at the passing hills and bright yellow fields are a freedom she's never known before. There are new friends to be made, like Maria, whom Anneliese regularly laughs and jokes with on their daily commute, and over the next few years, there are other changes too, biological changes and feelings that Anneliese struggles to reconcile with the demands of the scriptures. Though she desires to learn dance at the local ballroom, like her sisters, her mother Anna forbids it. Her place is at Mass, to give thanks to the Mother of God, Anna reminds her, and to show penance for all those less fortunate than herself. Some nights, Anneliese decides voluntarily to sleep on the floor as a sign of contrition. So determined is she to show her mother that she understands. But in spite of it all, something is stirring. In the summer of 1968, Anneliese and Maria are working together in class when Maria notices something amiss. Anneliese appears to have fallen asleep in her chair. Anneliese, she whispers to her, but there is no reply. Anneliese, she says more forcefully. Is Dallas in Ordnung? Is everything okay? Oh, yeah, natürlich, replies Anneliese finally, suddenly seeming to snap out of a daydream before turning back to her work as if nothing had happened. Later that night, she wakes with a start, unable to catch her breath, and her eyes wide in horror. She tries to cry out for help, but no words come out of her mouth. Her limbs are rigid, while something strong and invisible seems to be pinning her down to the bed. When she is finally released, a warm dampness spreads out from underneath her. She has wet the bed. Keeping the events of that night to herself, the incident is all but forgotten until a year later, when it happens again. Only this time, her screams of terror are heard throughout the house. The next morning, disturbed by the previous night's events, Anna takes her daughter to see neurologist Dr. Siegfried Luthi. The clipped and urbane Luthi finds little wrong with Annalisa, but suggests taking an EEG test in the hope of shedding some light on the cause of her peculiar seizures. Two days later, a nervous Annalisa sits in an examination room, surrounded by the quiet hum of machinery, as a series of small, wiry electrodes are stuck to her head. At the flick of a switch, a continuous feed of paper begins streaming from a printer as a row of crooked metal arms make sharp lines of colour across the page. Anna squeezes her daughter's hand with relief as Lutie regards the readings briefly before telling them both that there is nothing to be concerned about. 
A few weeks later, however, Annalisa is struck down with tonsillitis, followed by bouts of pleurisy and pneumonia. In February 1969, having also contracted tuberculosis, the devastated Annalisa is taken out of school, away from her friends, and sent for treatment at Hochgeberg's Clinic Sanatorium. The grand but stark sanatorium, located on the edge of Mittelberg, on the border of western Germany and Austria, is nestled a thousand feet high in the Allgäu, at the northern tip of the Alps. The rarefied air and majestic views of the Fussen Mountains should be the perfect tonic for Anneliese's lungs, but there is no shaking the sense of foreboding on her arrival as she approaches the isolated, monolithic building with the dark, evergreen firs looming behind it. Inside, Annalisa is led to her dormitory, with each step through the sanatorium's sterile, iodic corridors. Young, pallid faces appear in the approaching doorways, keen to get a look at the latest visitor. However, when she enters the dorm, the girls inside are quick to welcome her into their makeshift commune, and the familiar chirrup of teenagers soon puts her at ease. As spring turns to summer, Annalisa is making good progress until one night when everything changes. A throat-ripping scream wakes the girls and sends nurses sprinting down the halls to Annalisa's dorm. Only a few catch the faint whiff of ammonia and notice the dampness of her sheets, but all see Annalisa shaking with terror. It isn't clear what has set it off, but Annalisa is soon calmed and moved to a clean bed, but she is too scared to sleep. The next morning's checkup finds nothing wrong. In her dorm a few weeks later, Annalisa sits alone in the gloaming as the last of the day's light fractures in a burst of golden orange from behind the distant mountain peaks. Closing her eyes, she picks up her rosary and starts to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. She is still sitting in her chair, speaking to herself, when the girls find her. Annalisa, they say timidly. Annalisa, they say again. It is as though she doesn't even register them. The girls look on with unease as an unresponsive Annalisa continues to stare vacantly out of the window, her trembling hands held up in front of her face, stiff and rigid like claws. Then she seems to snap out of the trance and turns silently to face the girls as an odd, beatific smile plays about her lips. The pupils of her eyes, like two vast black discs. In June, Annalisa is taken for another EEG scan. This time, it reveals a slight anomaly in the pattern of her brain waves. According to the doctors, it appears that Annalisa is suffering from grand mal epilepsy and is prescribed a course of anticonvulsant pills to limit the chance of her suffering from a seizure. A week later, 
alone in her room, she is again staring out the window as she passes the rosary beads between her fingers. As she prays, something strange begins to take shape above the mountain peaks. The crooked nose appears first, followed by a pair of oddly twisted ears. Then comes a hideous mouth of gnashing teeth and a pair of eyes that stare directly at her from out of the sky. She tries to turn away, but something is stopping her, compelling her to look and take it all in. When she is finally released from its grip, she runs in terror to the back of the room, screaming at all her confused and terrified roommates to leave her alone. One afternoon, a few days later, Annalisa is asked if she's been suffering any further issues during her stay, but she says no, fearful of what they might do to her if she tells them about what she saw. After nearly six months in the sanatorium, she is given a clean bill of health and returns home. Now back home in Klingenberg, after such a long time away, Annalisa heads straight to her old bedroom. There, she takes a moment to reacquaint herself with all her old things. Sitting on her bed, she runs a hand over her old prayer book on her bedside table, with the wildflowers pressed inside it. She picks up her badly neglected diary and absentmindedly flicks through the pages. Then she stands and strokes the framed picture of Jesus on her wall. Meanwhile, downstairs, her sisters are speaking among themselves with quiet concern. Something isn't quite right with Annalisa, they say. She seems different. Over the next few years, Annalisa excels at school, and barring a few minor seizures, appears to be returning to a semblance of normality. In truth, she knew it would only be a matter of time before it came for her again. And sure enough, it did. It started one night in the spring of 1973, when she was awakened by what sounded like a gentle knocking on her door. But when she got up to open it, there was nobody there. When this happened a number of times, Annalisa felt compelled to tell her mother. She is taken again to see the doctor, but they fail to establish any explanation for the seemingly imaginary noises. When they return home, Annalisa's sister Barbara asks her mother what the visit was about this time. It's nothing, she replies. Annalisa is imagining noises at night. But Mama, says Barbara, I have heard them too. In fact, as it turns out, all of the sisters have been hearing it. The strange, soft banging coming from somewhere inside the house. Sometimes it seems to come from inside the walls, sometimes from under the floorboards, and sometimes it sounds like it's coming directly from inside. Annalisa's own wardrobe. One night, unheard by the rest of the family, 
a now 20-year-old Annalisa, awakes in the dark to find a voice is speaking to her. Join us in hell forever. Join us in hell forever. Join us in hell forever. It rasps over and over again. Join us in hell forever. 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 Yosef is startled awake by Annalisa screaming hysterically. Rushing to her bedroom, he finds his daughter writhing about in terror with her hands clasped over her ears begging the voices to stop. He grabs his daughter and holds her tight until she eventually calms down. In the summer of 1973, Joseph takes Annalisa on a pilgrimage to central Italy to visit the garden of Rosa Quattrini Bazzini a recently venerated shrine in the village of San Damiano, just east of Perugia. When Annalisa nears the garden, she appears suddenly crippled by a searing pain in her feet, as if they were on fire. When she next looks up, she is horrified to find the faces of the other pilgrims have turned into wide mouths of sharp, gnashing teeth, all coming for her. Though the moment passes, on the coach back to Klingenberg, Annalisa rips an icon medallion from the neck of Tia Hein, a friend and neighbor who'd organized the trip. Yosef apologizes profusely for her behavior and shepherds his daughter back to their seats, trying his best to keep her calm while the rest of the passengers whisper and stare at them. A few days later, Annalisa is back in Dr. Luti's office the devil is in me, she tells him. Luti shifts uncomfortably for a moment in his chair and looks to her mother, Anna, then back to Annalisa. What do you mean exactly? he asks. He's been speaking to me, through them. And who were they? The demons, she says plainly. And these are the ones whose faces you've seen. Yeah. And how do you recognize this as the devil exactly? Annalisa looks to her mother as if mulling over what to say, but is unable to reply. She knows that Luti will never understand. It is the last time she mentions anything to doctors about the gruesome faces or tormenting voices. It is September 1973 when Father Ernst Anton Alt first learns about Annalisa's case. The tall and sharply bearded Alt, although relatively young at 35, is considered deeply thoughtful and intelligent by his peers. He listens with great concern as Father Karl Roth recounts the meeting he's just attended concerning a possible case of demonic molestation. But before Roth can say more, a strange look comes over Father Alt. Much to Roth's amazement, Alt then proceeds to describe Annalisa and her family's situation in complete detail. He claims to have no idea how he was able to do this. Two days later, Father Alt consults with another colleague, Father Edward Herman, who'd also been contacted by the desperate family. 
When Hermann hands Alt two letters he received from Anna and Josef, outlining the case, Alt is overcome by a strange nausea. It is, he believes, as though something were warning him to stay away. Disturbed by his strange reaction to the case, Father Alt wastes little time in arranging to speak with the family. On first meeting the now 21-year-old Annalisa, he's a little taken by surprise at how lucid and determined, albeit a little pale, she seems, considering everything he's heard about her predicament. I am looking for people who believe me, she tells him, wasting little time in pleasantries. At first her conviction seems reassuring, but after an hour of examination, Father Alt and Father Roth are left in little doubt that Annalisa is indeed in the grip of a terrifying possession. However, not wanting to cause any alarm to Annalisa or her family, the pair decide to keep their judgment to themselves and agree to simply observe her over the coming weeks and months before deciding what they should do next. In the meantime, Annalisa is encouraged to continue living her life as she has always done. Around this time, she gains entry onto the University of Würzburg's teacher training course. In November, galvanized by her regular consultations with Father Alt, she travels to Würzburg to begin her studies. After moving into the university's stark five-story dormitory, she spends the next few months attending lectures and making new friends. There are ups and downs, with Annalisa sometimes staying entire days in her room, too lethargic to even speak to anyone. But on one of her better nights, she is dragged to a dance at the dormitory. As euphoric rock and roll shimmers from the speakers, a young man with soft pale skin and dark wavy hair watches from the edge of the hall as Annalisa dances blissfully under the smoky haze and dimmed lights. He introduces himself as Peter. She likes his eyes and his gentle self-assurance, and something about him puts her immediately at ease. They agree to meet up again, and in the days that follow, Peter grows ever more fond of the enigmatic young woman from Klingenberg. And in those first flushes of young love, it seems that Annalisa might finally be able to put her troubles of the past behind her. But all that was about to change, in more horrific and terrifying ways than anybody could ever have imagined. You've been listening to Unexplained, Season 7, Episode 6, Look Me in the Eye, Part 1 of 3. This episode was written by Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained the book and audiobook with stories never before featured on the show is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and other bookstores. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod 
and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplained podcast 